my body said to my soul my body said to my soul my body said to my soul please let go please let go my soul said to my body my soul said to my body my soul said to my body i know oh i know take me to rivers to the pines where i remember to breathe to be alive we could dance we could dance we could dance you and i we could dance we could dance we could dance carry me out with the morning birds open your mouth to sing forget to her we could dance we could dance we could dance you and i we could dance we could dance we could dance
Take me to rivers, to the pines Where I remember to breathe, to be alive We could dance, we could dance, we could dance you and I We could dance, we could dance, we could dance Carry me out with the morning birds Open your mouth to sing, forget to hurt We could dance, we could dance, we could dance you and I We could dance, we could dance, we could dance First, on Dante's, we have poet, professor, and poet laureate of Worcester, Massachusetts, Oliver De La Paz. Oliver, how you doing, boss? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. It is a divine pleasure to have you sitting in with me tonight. Um, I'm going to skirt all the obvious poetry questions, and I want to get to kind of the, the core of what makes your machinery work. 
Um, let's begin with exercise. Um, is there a routine you follow and uh, how does that help keep your creative juices flowing? That's a great question, Clifford, and I've never asked it. Uh, I am an avid gym rat. I am a five day a week guy. I am one of those people who maps out my workouts. So basically like I do chest on one day, back on another day, arms, legs, shoulders, that sort of thing. So I have it all mapped out. During the pandemic, when everything was shut down, I bought a Smith machine and I had it installed in my basement and I bought a treadmill, had that set up and I installed a TV in my basement, which was the best idea, best decision in my life. So I can't go a day without doing something with my body, like moving. Um, I heard somewhere on TikTok, it was probably like a TikTok where somebody said that motion is the lotion, man. So I have to, I have to move. And I, and I think it comes from my mom. My mom's side of the family are very, very twitchy people. They are constantly moving. My mother you know, you know, my mom is, has Parkinson's now. She's in her late 80s. But before that, she was someone who would wake up at four o'clock in the morning, and run on the treadmill for five, five hours, I swear. But, you know, I, that's that's how I'm built. I have to move. I have to I have to work out. And while I'm working out, I'm thinking and I'm never, ever not thinking about work or palms or that sort of thing it's just sometimes the private space of the body helps me envision the next poem envision the next line and so it's certainly something that's one part of my my daily health practice but also my, my writing practice in terms of practice um, to keep your your life in balance, to, to have this this perfect flow or as close to it as we can, uh, instead of perfection, we'll say peace. Um, from creativity to exercise to the classroom, how do you balance your teaching and creative writing? It's hard because they draw from the same source. Oftentimes, you know the the thing that makes you want to be an artist is oftentimes tested in the classroom because you also have to convey that that desire and that passion to uh, an audience sometimes they're an unwilling audience sometimes they're there just for credit man mm -hmm. and so your job as teacher is to sort of instill and and make infectious your own passions and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. And when it works, it's awesome. And it's, it's, you get a charge. And when it doesn't work, it's demoralizing. It's deflating. You feel terrible. You feel like you're the worst person in the world. So it's sometimes hard for me to write while I'm teaching, if that makes sense. I, I have to compartmentalize those parts of my life. That's partially why I, pretty much exclusively right during the summer when I'm off mm -hmm. that way I can dedicate that space and time to my own mind and uh, to my own selfish art industry if that makes sense mm -hmm. I do 
it, it, it's uh, we're gonna jump back to the business uh, and two shakes. But before we do this, let's carry it a step further. Music, okay. How does music move you personally, and how does that transfer to your page? I am one of those rare people. I don't know if I'm rare, actually. Let me think. Let me let me backtrack on that. I I compose while I'm listening to music. The music can't have lyrics, though. It has to be ambient. So the things that I listen to, of course, I'll listen to like classic jazz, Coltrane, uh, Thelonious Monk, and uh, Miles Davis. Sometimes Miles is a little too busy, uh, but some slower stuff. And then I'll also listen to stuff like these uh, post-rock bands like Explosions in the Sky or or Balmoria, or there's this other band called um, The Rachels, which is sort of like this quartet that plays an alternative version of classical music. Just stuff that's wordless is stuff that I vibe on. If there's lyrics, though, I'm no good. I, I tend to sort of feel like the words or the lyrics are in my space and in my headspace, and uh, I can't work to that. When you get into the work and bear down, you get into that business, that uh, the industry that we're in, those not being foul words, as many people want to make them. Uh, it's how we make that stuff that's green, that pays our bills, yep. money. Now, the technical side of it, uh, explain to us, and as far as you wish, how you get your book from the page to published. So Clifford, I am what many people call a, um, a writer of sequences or a project writer. And oftentimes what I do in my own process is I write lots and lots of similar sounding or similarly influenced uh, poems. So for example, I, I, can, I can say that my last three books were developed in a similar way where I had basically series and series of poems that had similar titles, which served sort of as a placeholder for me to generate more work. That way I wasn't starting from zero. I wasn't starting from scratch. And then the work would sort of build and build on top of each other as I progressed. I've taken on this particular style of writing since my my children were born because I have found that I have very little time on top of you know my teaching schedule taking care of kids is really really not great for your writing schedule sometimes so I developed this coping mechanism where I would basically write from a prompt or write from a particular type of script, like a title, and, and just go, and just go with it. Um, and so that was great. It, it, it's great to be generative in that way, to create poem after poem with similar titles and not having to worry about tracking what's going on. But then you get to the weird position where you have to send that work out. <laughs> they all have the same title. So you have to then go back and, and edit and you have to think, okay, 
what kind of relationship do these pieces have with one another? Is there a story forming? Is there a particular narrative arc that's starting to take shape or structure itself? What are the patterns that are happening? And that's another part of the process that I actually enjoy, which is the problem solving aspect of it. That, that point where you have the material, now you have to figure out how does this all work together? How does this all work together into something coherent so that a reader will understand your obsession? How, how is it that somebody else like Clifford Brooks will take these pieces and suddenly understand what is it that this poet is saying? What is it that this poet is obsessed with? That's the fun part too. You know, I love the composition, but I also love the puzzle making or the, the puzzle solving. Um, and then, you know, leaping from there is another layer where you have to determine, did I order or organize this thing, which is this work of art that I've been puzzling over for many, many months or years into something that a larger, broader audience will understand. And sometimes you have to make considerations for an audience that you hadn't thought of in the hopes of making it a piece of art or a piece of work that is coherent to someone outside of maybe your purview. And that's sometimes where an editor comes in. Mm -hmm. And for this last book, um, The Diaspora Sonnets, I had a really great editor. Her name was uh, Gina Iaquinta over at Live Right Press. And she just asked me questions. And most of the questions had to do with what's the story are, what story are you telling here? Whose point of view is this? Where is this going? And how do you account for the tonal shifts that are going on in this story that you're telling? So she was really reading the book like a novel in a way, which was useful because sometimes we poets don't necessarily think of the larger story form. When we're looking at poetry collections, we're more vibing on feeling. Mm -hmm. She was very, very particular about the storytelling aspect of it. What is the nature of the story that you're talking, uh, talking us through? Before we get to the poetry reading component, I want to swing back around to some of the fun stuff. <clears throat> do you enjoy cooking? And if you do, is there a particular dish that you like to dive into? So before children, I enjoyed cooking. I really enjoyed cooking. But now with children, I have three boys. And they are, they are in their hamburger, hot dog, chicken finger spaghetti mac and cheese face right basically everything bland nothing experimental no spices so i i honestly miss cooking filipino food i i was really great at making adobo which is a chicken dish in the philippines it's marinated in vinegar and garlic and soy sauce and and basically steeped in this really, really delicious brown gravy. I can make that really well. I can still make it, but I, my, my boys won't eat it. I also make a pretty good stew. It's called sinigang, which is like, I, I, I would say it's equivalent to a gumbo. 
okay. where you you boil some beef bones and you put um, the sour tamarind paste, this particular um, sour lemony taste uh, in the stew, and you mix it with greens and um, yams and, and those sorts of things. And I can make a really, really good sinigang. My boys also will not eat that. <laughs> so mostly what I've been cooking, I've basically been a short order cook um, for the better part of 15 years, which, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not thrilled about it, but that's, that's the story. To continue writing your story, uh, let's talk about travel. Is there somewhere, somewhere you want to go that you haven't been? Yes. Yes. I have talked to my wife about a couple places. I've never been to Italy and I've never been to Greece. She's been to both places. She wants to go back. I think that that would be a great place to go in the winter. And new, you know, since I'm in New England, we have really terrible winters. But Greece sounds like a great place. She's also really interested in going to um, Wales because she's she's Welsh. She's she's sort of part of the Emerald Isles. She wants to check that out. She wants to bring our kids. And that would be fun. Uh, in terms of other places, though, would love to would love to visit Australia. I've never been. I don't think she's been either, and uh, other places like that. From far away to back home again, the diaspora sonnets. Um, give us a little bit more background on that. And if you would bless us with about two poems. Sure. Yeah. So my latest book is called The Diaspora Sonnets. And it tracks my family after we had left the Philippines in 1972. My family on my father's side um, was blacklisted by the Marcos regime. And my uncle on my father's side in particular was a student who was one of the protesters uh, during that time as Marcos was declaring martial law. And my father who was paying for his education was worried that that word would get back um, about him and his status. And so he read the tea leaves and decided to um, get us out of the Philippines at that time. And then what ended up happening is we ended up traveling from state to state as my mother was trying to renew her medical license, which wasn't um, accepted uh, when she first entered the US. So she basically had to redo her education, if you will. Mm -hmm. And while that was happening, my father was taking on jobs and we were moving from state to state, uh, from San Francisco to Connecticut to Virginia to various other places. Um, and all the while he was picking up odd jobs. So that's more or less what the story of this book chronicles, our travels. But also, you know, one of the things that people don't tell you about being a member of the diasporic community or a diasporic community is that there's a lot of boredom. And I think that that's something that I wanted to talk about in this book, that there was just a lot of silence and a lot of boredom because there's no community. Um, I'll read for you a poem from the book. And this one is entitled Diaspora Sonnet with my father's stamped time card. 
my father cannot leave his imperfect world alone. And so we hemmed his tears, sewed lullabies to allay fears of alleyways deemed unsafe for casual walkers, made music sing over the din of razor talkers. We are guilty of rebalancing the tires to speed the car past the wreck of fires from our burned out neighborhoods. The tenements bombed out, the stores with goods smashed on linoleum tiles. We do what we do and they put it in our files. Stamped papers shuffled on someone's desk. Father stamping out the past. It's what he does best. Calls it self-care. You call it what you will. I love that one, man. Um, if you could give us one more, man. Just one more. Sure, sure. So um, the story of this one, uh, Diaspora sonnet nesting in a chimney. When we landed in a particular house as we were drifting from place to place, we were finding dead birds all over the place. Uh, and it was sort of, you know, it's ominous, sort of a bad, <laughs> it's a bad sign. And then we realized that there were chimney swifts in the chimney. Diaspora sonnet nesting in a chimney. We said that love proliferated the way a chimney swifts burrowed into the old attic insulation. We measured their generosity and their cries increased. We heard them in the day and called them our singers. We could not index them. Their service chiseled through the drywall and then they'd rush through our living spaces owning it all. We had rice. We had shirts. We had a roof with a choir. The long gush of their collective, full of thirst and want. Their calls cut through the ceiling, the gears of a machine that had already dug a long furrow into our seams. The way you read it um, is the way I hear it in my head. I've listened to you read before and the way that your style of reading, I have to ask, is it's, it fascinates me. How did you approach your reading of your poetry? How did you practice that? I grew up being a lectern in the Catholic church. And one of the things that happened when I was young was basically my parents forced me, I, I, and I say forced, forced me to be one of the lecterns for the scriptures in church. And I got a lot of practice out of that. I think it was a direct result of my father sort of being um, less than confident with his own English. And so he didn't want that to happen to me. And he made me practice in this particular way in public. Uh, so, you know, I think that my delivery, my inflection, the way I speak, uh, my poetry in particular comes from practicing in church, practicing speaking and reading in church before a public audience. It does sing like hymns, dude. It really does. <laughs> it does, man. The diaspora sonnets, man. Um, Y'all have to go get it. 
Before I let you go, Oliver De La Paz, tell us how to find your book and how to keep up with you. Sure. You can find my book at www.norton.com. It's available at the press. You can also pick it up at amazon.com. You can pick it up at bookshop.org and you can pick it up, hopefully, at your local independent bookstore. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much for being on the show. and We will have you back on soon. Thank you, Clifford. All right. And up now, we have the president of Bright Hill Press, a poet, a teacher, and former biopsychologist, Lynn Keeman. Lynn, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you with us. You have helped me co-host before, but this is the first time you are in the hot seat. So to fill the folks in on why you are miraculous, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, um, I think you covered most of my checkered career. Um, <laughs> the only part that we didn't talk about was um, that I used to be a theater administrator and that I managed a medical practice for 26 years and then went back to school and and redid a, um, a degree in um, biology and psychology thinking I wanted to be a doctor, but um, that was not to be. Well, what was to be? What is, uh, what's, what's brought light to your life over the last two or three decades? <laughs> um, I guess I have a short attention span. So um, <laughs> I have, I have um, had several careers and I've loved all of them. I love teaching and um I was also the undergraduate advisor at Hunter College in New York City, and um, there were 3,000 majors in my department, and there were two of us to to uh, take care of them, so uh, that kept me busy. And the teaching, as I said, that was, when I discovered teaching, it was like, wow, they pay you to do this? It's a legal drug. <laughs> it, it is. It's I find that uh, journey folk make the best poetry. How did all of these moving pieces turn itself into poetry for you? Uh, I think the poetry has been sitting there for years and years, and it was just sort of waiting to come out. Um, it, it's fun to, to look back on conversations and experiences and then turn them into a poem. You have a tremendous skill with ekphrastic poetry. Uh, what drew you to that form specifically? Um, it was a writing exercise. And, and for people who don't know about ekphrastic poetry, um, normally it is taking um, a visual piece of art and writing about it. Uh, back in the day before people had uh, iPhones and they were traveling, they would they would go all over the world and they would look at the great sites and then they would write a poem to send it back to their friends. And that was a way of describing what they were seeing. Um, I have since discovered that in addition to visual art, you can do it with music 
-hmm. which is an enormous amount of fun for me. Well, with music, um, do you listen to music while you write? Does it play any kind of part in your creative process? Um, if I'm writing a piece about music, I will play it over and over and over again until everyone in my house is, is running for the exits. Um, <laughs> but normally, I don't I don't play music when I'm writing. Now, you don't, uh, you're not an editor of poetry in the Blue Mountain Review. You carry a different uh, mantle. Uh, tell us about how your role with the uh, the Blue Mountain Review. Um, well, thanks to you, Cliff. Um, you gave me an opportunity to step in as editor of essays, and um, I love doing that. And in addition to that, I um, have had the wonderful opportunity to meet and speak with all kinds of poets and um, graphic artists, writers, and that that's been a wonderful treat. I I worked for a very small newspaper um, upstate briefly. Uh, this is a whole nother experience, and the the opportunity to get to really talk to people you've always wanted to meet and ask them all kinds of questions and um, that's your job is is another one of those real blessings there is a theory that i used to roll my eyes at and then learned later is absolutely true but i don't know if it's true for you uh the question is do you think that uh truly digging into the craft of poetry helps you become a better prose writer Oh, absolutely. And I think it goes in both directions, actually. I think the more you read and the more you look at um, techniques that different people use. Um, I've been a lifelong reader. I, it took me until I was really seriously writing poetry to really start looking at it in a different way um, and really thinking about, okay, this scene brings me to tears. This scene is amazing. This one's making me laugh. How do they do it? And uh, it's weird to say as somebody who, who reads so extensively that I never really thought about it until I started doing it. And now you're doing it in more ways than one. Shoes for Lucy is your first full-length collection of poetry. Right. What makes Shoes for Lucy special for you? Uh, well, um, I guess because it's an opportunity to take all kinds of writing that I love to do and and use it in, in this book. Um, there's ekphrastic, there's flash fiction, there is memories of people. Some of them are relatives, some of them are people who've been in my life. It's um, it's just a chance to put it all together, and um, and share it with people. I am honored to have this book uh, published through. Uh, it's our first full collection uh, through uh, the SCE Press here with the Southern Collective Experience. Uh, it'll be out this fall, uh, mid October. Um, but to keep up with you and find out updates about Shoes for Lucy, Lynn Keeman, how do we keep up with you online? Um, 
I have a web page, which is lynnkeeman.com, L-Y-N-N-E-K-E-M-E-N.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on um, X, that used to be Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to be on social media. We'll have all the links to all these sites, including your spot on the Southern Collective Experiences homepage and the notes of this show. Um, Lynn, we'll be having you back on soon, probably in the next few months to see how the book is on the shelves and how life is treating you with the book out amongst the people. Lynn, it's been fantastic to have you here. I look forward to that. Thanks, Cliff. All right. Thank you so much. Tossing after midnight Playing back the day Kicking myself How is it that moonlight Turns my better thoughts Into something else Easy in the morning For me When I open my eyes But in the dark some pretty good lies Meet me at the water when the sun goes down When the sun goes down When the sun goes down We'll stay up together Learn to laugh at ourselves Laugh at ourselves We'll laugh at ourselves We'll find it funny Yeah.
And up now on Dante's, we have poet Luke Johnson, whose new book, Quiver, comes out soon from Texas Review Press. Luke, how you doing, boss? I'm doing good. How are you? I am fine and dandy like sour candy. Um, <laughs> the folks don't know you like I know you, so mm-hmm. I want to. Uh, the I want them to know you that that matters most uh, in your poetry, and that's you. Um, how did you get your swagger, man? Um, there's so many ways I got my swagger. Uh, the first the first way is um, I think just the way I grew up. I grew up in a single parent household. Uh, my mom scrapped to get us by. I mean, she worked. 60 hours a week and so my sister and I were raising our little sister early on uh and so I know what it is to find joy in the small things um we were a family who listened to a lot of music uh rock and roll the stones uh Emmy Lou Harris uh John Prine Al Green uh Bonnie Rayett was a favorite in the house and so you know I grew up with this understanding that music coats your life and uh it's it's all about rhythm and sound um and so the music uplifted my family and i during those difficult times i mean i grew up in welfare lines i was like you know i'm just gonna say it straight i was like the one white kid in the welfare line and um and so i just know what it is to scrap the claw to get by to uh to live hard and then um my father was a renegade a bit of a renegade kind of ahead of his time um I don't know how much I could share about his career path that he chose, but um, <laughs> it had to do with prison. So that might give you some clues um, and uh, living hard in the hills and supplying certain things to people in Hollywood. I don't, I don't know how far I can go with that, but um, so, you know, he was, he was a hard nosed uh, whiskey drinking brass knuckle guy. And so I think part of that's him too. And uh, yeah. And, and then just this, um, I don't know if I could even, here I am sharing too much now. Um, I think also just uh, early on, I feel like I found, um, I got in touch with, with the divine too, uh, a piece of me that um, I think gives me some confidence as well. So that's where it comes from. Luke, um, on this show there, it never can be too much. Um, (laughs) And I want to take that swagger. I want to take, you know, ending with the divine, I want to take that a little step farther. How does all of that, the music growing up, welfare lines to finding the divine, how does all of that um, fit into your poetry? Man, so much of it. I have a lot of people tell me that when they read my work, they can sense the, um, the class, the class in it, the economic class stuff. And that's not on purpose either, Cliff. That's just my speakers channel that stuff. Um, some, some names I hear tossed around when people talk about my work or poets like Phil Levine and, um, some Larry Levis and uh, these poets who were working in that Fresno blue collar kind of grit. Um, <clears throat> the the music, of course, because I was I grew up on rock and roll and and um, and and you know the hip sway of, of Jagger and uh, and so there was a I guess a sexy undertone to the music I got to listen to that embodied uh, owning your life and owning who you are and not being ashamed of it and then obviously it was capped with, you know, I mentioned the divine, you know, um, <clears throat> I'm not ashamed to say that. I think early on, I, I, uh, I, I reconciled with, um, with God as I see them. And, uh, and so that gave me this joy, um, that can't be, that can't be stolen by anything difficult in life. It can be tested, but it can't be stolen. 
Time can be stolen from us, and uh, many poets allow poetry to do just that, steal their time. But um, you don't uh, curry to that. Uh, your idea is to keep poetry in its place. Tell us about that philosophy. Yeah, so, you know, I don't want to sound like some great sage. Obviously, I learned that through some mistakes. Um, but early on, when I first fell in love with poetry, I became mad for it. And it was insatiable. And I, I, um, I don't know, I'm just going to say it. I think I was apathetic in so many parts of my life because I was just letting poetry run my life. There was this madness attached to it. There was, um, I think it's, it's uh, Ginsburg who talks about, you know, and how he says, you know, the people who were starving, hysterical, naked. I think there were aspects of that starving, hysterical, naked that I was feeding into. Um, but I got married um, and then had my, my daughter, um, and so when I became a father specifically, there wasn't room for the starving, hysterical, naked madness, you know, drinking on a Wednesday stuff. To me, that became adolescent, it became corny, actually corny and adolescent. And, uh, and so my life began to switch in a way that was beautiful. Um, I began to value integrity, uh, value honesty, value time management, value hard work, um, value what it meant to be a father, to be a good husband, above poetry, and uh, not as if it has to rank, but long story short, the way I typically say it is poetry used to run my life, and now I run poetry's life. Like, I tell poetry what to do. You know, I think we were talking before, and I mentioned my, I have a golden doodle, and before we did this interview, I love her so much. I mean, she's means so much to me, but I told her, go in your bed, go in your crate, I'm going to lock your crate. Cause I got to have to do this great interview with, with, with Cliff. And so I treat poetry similarly, you know, I'm not going to ever let poetry steal a time with like my wife when we're hanging out, watching something together, or I'm not going to ever miss my sons, you know, or, or not coach my sons say like little, little league teams, because I'm so obsessed with writing the next great poem. Um, in fact, I found that as I've learned to put poetry in its place, um, the poems have actually gotten better. So, yeah. Indeed, man. You you might almost say you've made poetry quiver. Uh, uh -huh. And to launch forward on that word, quiver. Quiver is your first and new book. Um, it comes out soon. What's it about and uh, what do you love about it? Man, what I love about quiver is so many things. Um, quiver is the book that's allowed me to reconcile with my father. Uh, but I had to write it first to reconcile. Um, I had a difficult relationship with my dad. Um, I mentioned a little bit about who he was as a person and that made it hard obviously to be a son. Um, and, but in order to reconcile with my father, who's no longer with us, um, I had to name the things I had to say it. And so in quiver, my speaker is haunted by this paternal figure really throughout. There's this shadow father, um, who has caused obviously like lots of damage in the speaker's life, um, but also created these undertones, these ideas of what it means to live in the world and live among people um, and, and try to find your way. Um, the beautiful thing about Quiver though, is the last section ends with the speaker as a father. And so he begins to sort of find this, this newness to his life. He burgeons out of that kind of broken, wounded layer that he was living in. Um, so yeah, so so quiver. I love lots of things about it. It deals with toxic masculinity. It 
deals with some mild eroticism, um, sexuality stuff. It deals with brutality and tenderness and how they both braid together. Um, I also love Quiver because uh, the, the poems are not always the easiest subjects or topics and the poems are lyrical and they sing you into them. Um, I love that aspect of poetry. I love that we're like sirens who can sing people into the most difficult, scariest places. Um, and even in fact, oddly make it beautiful. So, uh, that's those, there's, there's lots of reasons why I'm excited about quiver, but this book, I'm indebted to this book because it's allowed me to write the second book. Um, I, I would say less haunted by my father. Something beautiful, um, to make something, to breathe beauty into it. Um, quiver does that. Um, would you grant us a breath? from that book with a poem please yeah um this is a poem that comes early in the collection it's called numbers 1418 um which is a scriptural reference uh numbers 1418 is it says the sins of the father will ripple out into the third and the fourth generation um and so that's the title of the poem and it'll kind of give you an idea of who i am i think as a poet numbers 1418 I've never told you how my father tied a drunk man to a chair and snapped the first four fingers on his left hand. How the moon, a sickle soaked in milk, hung center the window cracked from frantic birds and how the man, his dad, howled like a stray in the hills the boys bragged of maiming. You might be wondering what happened to the fifth finger, his thumb, and whether it stayed straight or faced a similar form of fracture, but none of that matters. In the time it'd take to detail a thumb pried loose, I could move from the shed to the house a quarter mile north, where my nana swirls time in soup and sways her hips to Stevie Wonder, John Prine. How can she dance when the dead crawl inside? How can she dance with a body branded, owned by a beast, a belt that blooms the tremors? Believe when I tell you the fifth was spared. That my father ran out of brandy, out of spite, stopped soothing with brass, sought light and stepped out, deeply hidden, an animal crazed for water. That he found in his search an oasis, and there lapped stars until shame, clotted, concealed, spread like mange, and swallowed him. Sometimes that's all that it takes. One taste. One. For dead wind to enter and eat the insides of a boy, 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 of a boy. Luke Johnson, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a tremendous honor to sit with you and absorb that. It is divine in nature and it radiates with, I think everything that you'd hope to have, you know, mm -hmm. it, uh, it, it, it's, it sits with me. It sits with me, brother. Now for folks to, to have more of this, um, how do they find your book and how can they find you to hear you read? So I'm on all the socials. Um, and so you can find me on obviously on, Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Luke Johnson Poetry. I'm on Twitter at Luke's Rant. 
Um, I'm getting better at the X called it Twitter. I guess it's called X now. Um, I have a website, Luke Johnson Poetry, which obviously I need to update. Don't judge me on that. Um, and uh, you can buy my book in all the typical channels. The pre-orders are very much appreciated. Thank you so much. Uh, you can order it through the press, Texas Review Press, um, which is always appreciated because uh, the, the press gets a, bit, a, a larger cut from that, which helps support them. Um, but we appreciate sales in any place. So you can purchase it on Amazon. I know lots of folks have bought it off of Amazon, which is cool. Uh, Barnes and Nobles and all the, all the other necessary channels. Right on. <clears throat> well, poet Luke Johnson, it's been an honor to have you here. Thank you, sir. Now y'all go get quiver pre-order it now because it's coming out soon. And we've made it through another show, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Dante's old South and I am your host, Clifford Brooks. I want to thank all of our guests, Oliver De La Paz, Lynn Keeman, and Luke Johnson, as well as Krista Wells for all of her beautiful music. My heart goes out to NPR and WUTC, Richard Wenham, The Red Phone Booth, The Crown, and Wild Honey Teas. For those of you who are interested in my work, Mercer University Press just released my new book, Old Gods, this month. I've got creative writing classes as well as courses on those with late diagnosed autism on Teachable under the Brooks Sessions. And lastly, I offer creative writing courses through UCLA Extension. All of these as well as links to those on the show tonight will be in the show notes. I truly appreciate you for sitting in with me tonight. So, good night, be well, and be excellent to one another.